If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the October 21st, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender radio show, now including the queer and intersex communities in our mission statement and proudly promoting our allies. Hello, I'm Jonah Blackman, And I'm Chloe Corcoran. Since Michael Taylor Gray is doing the AIDS Walk in Palm Springs, and this is Jonah's first time hosting, welcome Jonah, we're going to forego spilling the honest tea this week. But that just means more time for more stories. Tonight, in an important TTV talk to Vosh, director Josh Howard talks about his documentary, The Lavender Scare. In Curious, with Jonah Blackman, the lesbian couple, Evelyn Marcus and Rosa Ziegers, go behind the documentary, Never Again Is Now, to talk about the global rise of anti-Semitism. Then, in Storytellers with Michael Taylor Gray, we meet show creator Matthew Lynn and the three actors, Sean McBride, Corey Page, and Rylan Shelton, who play the Thruple in the Deku series called The Third. Can we Deku and chill? Is that a thing? That's what the cool kids are doing. In The Third, a sexy new Deku original series, a young man enters into a passionate three-way relationship with an established gay Palm Springs couple only to learn that adding a third could bring a whole new set of skepticism, jealousy, and secrets. True that. Take it away, Michael Taylor Gray. Hello, everybody. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and this is Storytellers. Everybody has a story to tell, from your closest friend to that stranger you walk by and never see again. And within our ever-expanding LGBTQI community, there are many heartfelt challenging, intriguing, and entertaining stories to tell. Storytellers brings these stories to you, our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Now sit back and relax. We have a story to tell, and we want to share it with you. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and I'm bringing you another Storyteller segment. I want to introduce you to the creator of the show, the third, Matthew Lynn. Why don't you introduce us to the cast that you have here? Right beside me, I have Ryland Shelton, who plays David in the show. And then I have Corey Page, who plays Carl, and Sean McBride, who plays Jason. Matthew, what was that aha moment? The third popped in your head, and it became very clear it needed to be shared with the world. When I came out, I my family rejected me initially. But once they started to live with somebody who was gay and realized that gay people have more to them than just being gay, 
they finally came around and I learned that empathy is a very powerful thing in our ability to communicate who we are to other people. And I thought being in two, three-way, thruple, triad, whatever you want to call it, relationships in my life, I found out that a lot of people have relationships that are open relationships, polyamorous relationships. And by making a show that doesn't apologize or glorify what it is, it just accepts it and moves forward and allows you to invest in these people. It gave the best format, I think, for us to showcase this different alternative lifestyle for people to understand and maybe even try it on their own. Tell us about your background. I used to be a Southern Baptist music minister, and that didn't work out too well. So I started over in my mid-20s and went into film because I'd always loved film. Went to AFI and been working in the industry for years. And then I went on and we made the show and we built it into something. When does it debut? It debuts October 24th on Deku. Deku is one of the largest online LGBT video streaming services, much like Netflix or Amazon or Hulu. They have a global reach, which I think is really awesome that we get to share the story with an entire audience in the world. Now, we don't want to ignore our triad. So we're going to start off here with Rylan Shelton. The script is fantastically well-written. You have three people shouldering the weight of the effort in this relationship alternately. Exactly how human relationships go. None of this whitewash, I'm the perfect one and you're the bad one, gets a lot more gray than that. That's always attractive as an actor. Play the nuance of a, an accurate depiction of a relationship. A three-person committed relationship. And that, I think, is really beautiful that Matthew has been able to bring those circumstances to a wide audience by making these characters absolutely relatable. Okay, Corey Page, same question for you. What was it about the subject matter and, and the character in particular that really drew your attention? Well, it's a compelling dynamic to start off with. You have two characters, Carl and David, who are in a situation where they've both suffered a tremendous amount of loss in their life and they were able to connect emotionally to each other on that loss, but somewhere along the line as the relationships develop, they've lost that connection. But at the same time, they want to stay together. So they bring in this third person. Never been in a polyamorous relationship, so that was interesting to explore that and what makes those characters come to that decision. And also, what's the fallout? Because there is fallout to this relationship, not just for them and how they navigate that landscape, but also how their friends and family deal with it. And that's where the drama comes into this series, which is very well done. I want to make sure that we get Sean McBride. What was it about the core subject matter and your character in particular that just drew you in? Is this something you felt you needed to do? Yeah, well, I was initially very drawn to it because I got the job. And that was really appealing to me. <laughs> getting cast. Uh, yes, getting, getting cast. cast was like, it really resonated. The scripts are incredibly well written. And for my character, it's so fun and interesting to play someone who's searching for family in a new way and incorporate a bit of, you know, Matt's real life into it. And we have the religious background and he's trying to sort of maintain a relationship with his family while also trying to forge a new life, new family with these other men on the opposite side of the country. It was great having Matt around to guide me through all that and give insight into what his experience was like. He had a very clear idea of what he wanted the show to be, and so it was really like an honor and a great responsibility to try to realize his vision. With your character in particular, I know you do deal with coming out to your parents. Can you all relate to that? Sean McBride. I never had to come out to my parents, so it was just acting. You can be an ally. I am certainly an ally, yes. And what about you? I was actually forced to come out to my mother because someone did it for me. 
Corey Page. It was a little sobering at the time. I'm sort of coming out all the time. Rylan Shelton. I, I identify as a bisexual man, and so I always get sort of lumped into one category or another. My family have been the ones that have been the coolest with that pretty much for my entire life. But it's really in social circumstances where people are getting to know me or learning more about me for the first time that this frisson, this friction around coming out is always sort of in the back of my mind based on what people assume about me and what then I'm able to offer them as part of my truth. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers on IMRU, and I'm talking to the creator and cast of the new Deku.com series, The Third. Matthew Lynn is our show creator. Are there any uh, prevailing myths about what I like to call thruples? I guess some of the myths really is a lot of what people see, actually, which is that their jealousy is a huge part. Right. And learning to control your jealousy and trust. And a lot of people think like bringing in a third person is going to help the relationship like having a baby. But the reality is, is it's more difficult because you go from one relationship to four, all the individual relationships and then the group as a whole. And you have to be able to trust who you're not with that they're looking out for what's best for you with the other person. An unbelievable amount of trust. If you're going to enter one of these relationships, a lot of the questions that come up in season one are what you're going to deal with in trying to make it work. What are some of those questions? Why is this third person coming into our relationship? Obviously, we're broken if we have to have a third person, but that's not true. Finding the ability to feel safe loving somebody else while still loving your partner and not worrying about them feeling left out. FOMO is huge, right? What's FOMO? Fear of missing out. Like I was back and forth to LA and Palm Springs a lot when I was in the triad relationship. And, you know, FOMO was a huge part of it. I'd be sitting at work and they'd be out partying at a party. And I'm just like, ugh, like I almost kind of wish I didn't know that it happened. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's a lot of balancing. But I think there are a lot of positives that, you know, you're immediately a family the moment you enter a room. Like, everybody is there. You have more than one person. It's not just you and me. It's us. And I think that's huge. Also, cleaning the house is so much easier with three people, by the way. (laughs) So, you know, getting chores done is incredibly faster. So, Corey... I think one of the myths is people always think it's always about the sex, the sex, the sex. But it's not. I think a lot of people that dive into a polyamorous relationship are looking for friendships and an extended family almost. So I am glad that you're telling the story because I think there are a lot of myths that surround it. Are you avoiding saying three-way relationship because of not any kind of sexual connotation? Or just... I think it actually speaks to uh, how many people are actually in them. The fact that we have all these different names because they've come right. out of these different cultures of hiding in a way. of like You have the thruples, you have a triad, you have three-way relationships, you have whatever people decide to call them. No, I, I think the myth of it is is simply... It is an evolution of a dyad, which is what most people consider, quote unquote, a regular relationship with two people, right? So a triad is a three-way relationship. Are you going to explore three-way relationships like with women, or bisexual relationships? I think the best way for me to authentically tell a good story is to tell my truth and what I've experienced, right? And I think when I start treading into other people's territory, then I start telling what I think their story is. And so in that defense, I think the probably the best thing for the show to do is to continue on telling the story of these people and where it goes. That being said, it's not just the triad. There's other characters as well. And what we have planned for the next season is to open up the world significantly and see other aspects of that community and that world. So... Maybe is the answer to your question, I guess. That's a perfect answer. Now, why Palm Springs? When I first came to Palm Springs is when I entered into a triad relationship. I literally just moved back to L.A., but I've been there for three years. And Palm Springs is the gayest place on earth. It's 53% gay. The entire city council is LGBT. 
And it's just an, an incredible place where you can live this gay mecca lifestyle. And it's beautiful, and I feel like it isn't seen enough. And the experience of living there for three years was such a cathartic and healing experience for me as a gay man. It was a love letter to Palm Springs, if anything, from the show. And I think that kind of comes out in what we did is just to showcase this beautiful place uh, where gay people are completely accepted and you can walk down the street holding hands and never have to worry about it. And you can explore these alternative lifestyles. Have any of you other gentlemen here, have you personally experienced a relationship like the three main characters in the series? Do you find it intriguing? Of course I think it's intriguing. Rylan Shelton. Filling out these roles, we all uh, definitely took our brains to the place where this is a possibility, and what are the necessary reactions and ingredients for this sort of relationship to work? Does that differ from how I engage in relationships, and how is it the same? I myself have not ever been in a relationship where I have more than one committed partner. In a lot of ways, I could imagine that being very similar. I could also imagine it being very, very different, and that's something that the show highlights in a really beautiful way. This is Michael Taylor Gray with Storytellers on IMRU, and I'm talking to the creator and cast of the new Deku.com series, The Third. Creator, Matthew Lynn. The whole purpose of the show is I wanted to be able for somebody in middle America who's never even heard of the concept of a three-way relationship, let alone a gay three-way relationship, to be able to sit down and connect with these characters. One thing that I learned looking up and uh, studying polyamorous relationships is that it's a lot more common than you think. And doing the show and like obviously being out there and the, the people come out of the woodwork and you find out that there's people that have been in 25-year dryad relationships or three-way relationships and they're wonderfully happy and they figure out a way to make it work. I don't think it works for everybody, and I think it takes a specific type of emotional connections with people, but for those that it does work with, I think it's wonderful, and I feel like we live in a society that says you have to be in a two-person relationship, but some people actually work better in a three-way relationship, so I don't think the show is trying to sensationalize it of saying, like, oh, like, look at this thing that we put in the show to make it different. I think it's, we're trying to bring awareness to this actually very legitimate way to live your life that you don't have to apologize for. And I think by making the show, we speak to that and, make, and normalize it. I set out to make this thing. And I, I was originally in a, a triad relationship back in my early 20s when, when my parents kicked me out. An older couple took me in, and that evolved into a triad relationship, which is what essentially the show was based on. But then I got into one as the show was being written. And as we were shooting the pilot, actually, I was still in the triad. Uh, and then when we came back and finished the season, I was out of it. So this has been a... a a three-year journey from conception to finishing the first season, but the reality is it's been a, a nine-year journey, really, for me to get this story out. The idea that we had finished it was this incredibly cathartic life experience for me of just, like, we are in this place where, what's next? <laughs> you know, for 10 years, I've kind of known that this is where we're going, and now I'm like, okay, what's the next direction? And it, what's been really fun, I think, is season one was incredibly built on real life experiences. Like I, I'm that weird person that we're having a fight and I run in the other room and I'm like writing down what we were talking about so I can <laughs> put it in a script somewhere. Um, but uh, season two, it, it really opens up for the characters to explore not only their world, but who these people are because we spend the whole first season setting that up. I'm really excited about where we can take people and showcase like the depth beyond because season one deals a lot with like following these surrogates for our, our audience to figure out what is this thing and is it going to work? Is it not? Matthew, how many episodes are there in season one? So there's six episodes in season one. 
And yeah. what what are the running times? Each one is between fourteen and twenty minutes. Yeah, yeah. It's, but and it's about an hour and fifty minutes total. Have you started filming season two? No, 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 no. We have not started yet. No, you're releasing it October 24th. How are you releasing this? It's my understanding through Deku, they'll release it all at once. So October 24th on Deku, D-E-K-K-O-O.com for the third. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Taylor Gray with IMRU on KPFK Radio. And you've been listening to Storytellers. The third premieres October 23rd on the Deku Streaming Network. So, Jonah, have you ever been in a throuple? Well, I have to have some mystery. The Famous American Stamp Series, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. In 1938, the U.S. Post Office Department decided to issue a series of 10 stamps recognizing 10 famous Americans. With so many suggestions from the public, they increased the number from 10 to 35. The famous Americans ultimately included authors, poets, artists, educators, inventors, composers, and scientists. There would be five denominations in each category, one, two, three, five, and ten cents. The stamp subjects would be assigned a denomination based on their order of birth, with the oldest birth date being assigned the one-cent stamp. The first stamp in the series was for an author, a one-cent Washington Irving stamp. Only three of the 35 famous Americans were women, One was a 10-cent stamp honoring Jane Addams. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Melinda Skinner. Hi, I'm Randy Barbado. Hello, I'm Fenton Bailey, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Out front and out loud since 1974. You weren't even born. Stick to the text. Okay, sorry. Stay on. They said it was gonna. <laughs> I am you. I am you. Guess what Richard Burton and Rex Harrison play? Well, whatever it is, they don't play it straight. <laughs> Staircase in color from 20th Century Fox. My mama told me when I was young, we're all born superstars. She wrote my hand, put my lipstick on In the glass of her but There's nothing wrong with loving who you are She said, cause he made you perfect, baby So hold your head up and you don't go far Listen to me when I say Welcome back. I'm Jonah Blackman. And I'm Chloe Corcoran. In this TTV or Talk to Vosh, Josh Howard talks about his documentary, The Lavender Scare. The untold story of how tens of thousands of homosexual federal workers were either fired or denied employment in the 1950s, stirring outrage in the gay community and starting an LGBTQ rights movement with an unlikely hero at the forefront. This is Vosh Bodhi with another episode of TTV. Talk to Vosh. Institutionalized homophobia has been around for so long that many of us do not remember a time when it didn't exist. 
let alone understand how it came to be. Today, I am speaking with 24-time Emmy Award-winning producer Josh Howard about his documentary, The Lavender Scare. In his film, Josh chronicles the birth of government-sanctioned discrimination against the LGBT communities and highlights an unlikely hero who rose to fight it. Will you please say hi and introduce yourself? My name is Josh Howard. I'm the producer and director of The Lavender Scare documentary. And how do you identify yourself and what PGPs do you like to use, please? Well, I'm gay. He, him. What's the other one? He, him. Uh. <laughs> that, that's good. You like, to, you, you like to use male. That's, fine. that's fantastic. Thank you. I was in a relationship for 35 years. My husband died four years ago. But, you know, that preceded domestic partnership. So when I'd be filling out some application for something, I would check single. And then suddenly you could check domestic partner. And that was like huge. And so I changed how I would describe myself. And then we got married. And then I could check off married. And now I check off widower. But I'm doing my best. I'm evolving. So I appreciate your guidance on that and your patience. I will be here to remind you. Thank you. What is the Lavender Scare about? The documentary is about this time period in the years after World War II when it was believed that gay men and lesbians were a threat to the security of the country. The theory was that gay people were susceptible to blackmail by enemy agents and would give up national secrets in exchange for keeping their sexuality secret. So the government went about trying to identify and then fire every gay man and lesbian working for the government. A lot of gay history is really regionalized. My audience knows of Harry Hay, of Lee Glaze, Pride, the Black Hat, and all of that. Where does your film, time-wise, fit into that history? Well, actually, the storyline of our film goes back to the 1920s, in uh, the years following the start of the Great Depression, when the U.S. government was hiring a lot of people to work in the uh, programs of the New Deal. The workforce in Washington increased fourfold in the 1930s. And a lot of people who came to Washington for those new jobs were gay, disproportionately so, because uh, it gave them an opportunity to leave small towns where they felt somewhat isolated and come to a larger city where gay people had begun to uh, gravitate. So the story really begins at a time when Washington was a very welcoming place for gay men and lesbians. And then we follow that through to everything that happened afterwards and continues to happen, actually. So how did you come to make this film? I was happily retired from a long career in uh, television news and was not really looking for a project. And I came across a book called The Lavender Scare, written by this guy, David Johnson. He's a professor at the University of South Florida. And I was just reading this book, and I was stunned by this information. I'm in the generation, you know, a little bit after the heart of The, the Lavender Scare, but certainly growing up, you know, knew that the 1950s were not a great time to be gay in America. But what really shocked me when I was reading David's book was really learning how systematically the government was going about tracking down and identifying and firing gay people and really ruining their lives. And I thought, this is amazing, this should be a film looked around and suddenly I found I was the one who was making the film. Got in touch with David Johnson and got to work on it. I was interested in the role that the Kenzie Report played in your film. That was intended to give people freedom with their sexuality. What impact did it actually have? 
Well, it had the reverse effect because homosexuality was not something that the general population was really thinking about uh, before the Kinsey Report. And I think that's one reason there wasn't a great deal of discrimination. The Kinsey Report comes out and says that 37% of American men have had at least one homosexual relationship uh, to the to point of orgasm. And that shocked people. And they're suddenly walking down the street thinking, I have one out of three people here, and you know, who is it? And you know, what about that guy? And it, it really provided the opportunity to play into the fears about sexuality and national security, as it turned out. National security was the little scapegoat at first, then with children, now it's religious freedom. So we're seeing a progression of their tactic. Exactly. To come back at us. This is Vosh Bodhi speaking with the Emmy Award-winning Josh Howard about his documentary, The Lavender Scare. In the film, the LGBTQI people really are the protagonists. Who would you say is the antagonist? Well, the government officials are, uh, uh, I suppose you would say, are the, are the bad guys in the film. Religion does not seem to play a role at all in your film, as an antagonist at all. Not particularly. I mean, the, it, it, certainly organized religion has never been friendly toward LGBTQ causes, but not, not specifically in, uh, in the policy of the government at this, at this time. Who is Frank Kameny? I think it would be hard to find another single individual who contributed as much to the movement as Frank did. Frank was an astronomer, he had a PhD from Harvard University, and he worked for the U.S. Army Map Service. He was sitting at his desk one day and two civil service agents walked in and said, we have information, you are a homosexual, what do you have to say in your defense? And he said in his defense, it's none of your business that effectively was the end of his employment with the federal government. Probably 5,000 people, we estimate, were fired from their jobs before Frank Kameny was. Unlike every one of them, Frank said, this is wrong and I'm going to fight to keep my job. The government in firing Frank Kameny created the leader of the movement in that time period. You've won awards. Talk to me about the awards. Well, we did a number of film festivals and uh, won 18 awards for Best Documentary, which was, which was gratifying. What moment are you most excited for people to see in this film? Where after this long, lonely fight of Frank Kameny that begins with him being drummed out of, the, out of his job in the government because he's a homosexual, to be honored at the White House by President Obama, I, I think it's a very satisfying moment. It really is. It was really fantastic. In doing your research, did you find any positive articles written about the LGBTQI community in mainstream press? Not at all. And growing up in the 1960s, the only time you would see a gay person mentioned would be in the police plotter section. If someone had been arrested for something. I mean, the idea that there could be out public officials and out CEOs of major corporations. It was just unheard of. There were no positive role models. One of the harms that the government policy did for the community was to reinforce this issue of gay people as criminals, untrustworthy, disloyal, and it was really something that cemented in people's minds that lasted for decades. Yeah, people say, well, how many people exactly lost their jobs? And that's kind of not the right question because it goes beyond that. It, it, it created this whole homophobic atmosphere in the country. Once the U.S. government said these people are, are bad, they're criminals, they're immoral, you know, stay away from them, 
you know, that infected thinking for, for you know, decades following that. Well, because it's suddenly institutionalized. It was the government giving its stamp of approval to homophobia. And that's what's happening yet again. What I found most interesting about the project was talking to the people who instituted these policies in a way as tragic and heartbreaking the stories of the victims are. You know, there's something that isn't necessarily surprising about them. We know that gay people have been victimized and we can anticipate their stories. What I couldn't anticipate were the opinions and the recollections of the government officials who all these years later looked back at what they had done in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I was curious to hear if they were going to be defensive or apologetic. And to a person said that they believed what they did back then was the right thing to do. But what about? Today they, they said they wouldn't do the same thing, but they still believe that they did do the right thing for what the time was. So there was no remorse. Wow, that's a bummer. Well, it's both a bummer and it was fascinating to hear. One of the government officials we interviewed was still held particularly homophobic opinions. And after the interview, the cameraman said, you must have wanted to punch that guy. And I said, well, no, actually, I wanted to give him a kiss because as a filmmaker, how valuable to have someone really express honesty and not use this occasion to, in some phony way, say, oh, I'm so sorry for what I did. So it was quite an enlightening experience. This is Vosh Bodhi speaking with the Emmy Award-winning Josh Howard about his documentary, The Lavender Scare. What impact are you hoping The Lavender Scare will have you know, when I started working on this project, I really saw it as an interesting look at an important part of our history that hasn't gotten the attention I think that it deserves, but still history. And now there are certain messages of the film that are so relevant today in ways that they weren't just a couple of years ago. And I really hope it is a wake-up call that as much progress as we've made in the past, I think we have to be aware that the march of social equality doesn't necessarily continue in a straight line. There can be a step back for every two steps forward. And the current political climate that we're in, I think, is a good example of that. Are you going to continue on with any sort of activism once you're done promoting the film? What are you doing after? Well, I, f I feel this is an ongoing process. Part of the battle is getting the film done, and the rest of it is getting people to see it. And uh, I will be continuing to do screenings for community groups or you know, government agencies and uh, LGBTQ groups at law firms. Documentaries are hard, but we have to do them. It's important that we teach our history from the standpoint of knowing it so we do not repeat it. That's the most important message. Be very aware that during times of concern over national security, we have a history in this country of demonizing certain minority groups. And as we look at what's happening today, I think it's important for people to remember that. Who should see the Lavender Scare and why? Well, everybody should see it, but uh, particularly I would say Young people and young gay people should see it because I think it's important you know, that we all understand our history and know what we've experienced. I really think it's important for our allies, our straight allies, to see this film because I think the more people who do understand what LGBTQ people have been through, how we've been treated by the government, and really what our own personal stories are, I think the more people that 
hear that do become our, our allies. And I think it's probably most important in a way for people who do not support our rights to see the film because even if it doesn't convince them that we deserve equality, at least they will know that yes, there was a time when we would go away quietly and not fight for our rights, but that time is over and they can expect that we're going to be on the front lines fighting and I think it's important that that message come through. And it's important. People need to understand what we have fought against already. So when those arguments keep reappearing, which they do. Well, exactly. And as the film describes, the homophobia of the 1950s was a direct reaction against a period of time in which gay people were allowed to live their lives without real overt discrimination. And history does repeat itself. If you look now at the transgender ban in the military or the judges that are being appointed to federal courts that have clear histories of ruling against the interests of LGBT people or these religious liberty initiatives that are happening. They're real echoes of what happened in the 1950s and I think it's important for, for our community to understand that. Where can people go to find the most up-to-the-minute information about The Lavender Scare? Our website, thelavenderscare.com. We'll have information about upcoming screenings and VOD release and DVD that will be released later in the year. Fantastic. This is Vosh Bodhi, and I have been speaking with the multi-award-winning Josh Howard about his multi-award-winning documentary, The Lavender Scare. If you haven't seen it, do everything in your power to do so immediately. And remember, if you have a story to tell, TTV. Talk to Vosh. The Lavender Scare can be streamed free at pbs.org. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The Jane Addams Stamp, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born the youngest of eight children in Cedarville, Illinois in 1860, Jane Addams grew up to be a role model for middle-class women. She was a pioneer settlement worker and founded the Hull House, a social welfare center in Chicago. An overachiever, she was also an author, sociologist, and leader of woman suffrage and world peace. In 1931, she became the first American woman to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. In 1940, the U.S. Post Office Department posthumously honored Adams in their famous American Stamp series by issuing a 10-cent stamp featuring her portrait. During Adams' life, she had relationships with Ellen Starr and Mary Rosette Smith, then described as romantic friendships or Boston marriages. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Melinda Skinner. Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. You may not sympathize with the portrayals in some of my best friends are, but they are real. Portraits of men, men maddened by forbidden desires for other men like them, homosexuals. I, I, I guess we have no other place. Sensitive, provocative, climactic. Some of my best friends are rated R. Mama told me when I was young, we were all superstars. She pulled my hand, put my lipstick on, and I 
Seventy years after the end of World War II, anti-Semitism is again on the rise in Europe and now in the U.S. This is something that's explored in the new documentary, Never Again Is Now, a film that Jonah explores in the debut of his segment, Curious. Welcome to Curious on IMRU Radio. I'm your host, Jonah Blechman, and I'm thrilled to have the filmmakers of a shocking and vitally important documentary about the current state of anti-Semitism in Europe and the U.S. I'm thrilled to welcome filmmakers and partners in life, Evelyn Marcus and Rosa Ziegers, who are also the subjects of the eye-opening documentary Never Again Is Now. So I just want to jump right in. Evelyn, this film really follows through your experience of an extraordinary journey and legacy with anti-Semitism. Can you tell me a little bit about the journey that occurs within the film? In the film, I tell the story of how I grew up in the country where I was born also, in Holland, and lived in the world's most liberal city, Amsterdam. I grew up virtually without any anti-Semitism, around me that just wasn't there so much in Holland. But that all changed as of the year 2000. It changed in such a way that in 2006, my partner Rosa and I decided to leave Holland after we had a a pink star of David graffitied at our front door. We heard slurs in the street like uh, Jews to the gas. And we read in the newspapers that the numbers of anti-Semitism were rising dramatically. So since we are both um, children of Holocaust survivors and we knew the stories of our parents, we thought we're not going to wait until this is going to get worse. We'll grab the opportunity that we got in 2006 to move to the United States and left. And in hindsight, we were early in the current Jewish exodus from Europe. And that took you to the U.S.? Yes. Let's go back even a little bit before that. What kind of work do both of you do? Uh, to Because you're not classically filmmakers. No, not at all. So I know there's sort of a unique story even around that, but where are you coming from that suddenly this documentary was created? So I'm a psychologist of origin, specialized in... Uh, um, conflict and violence. Rosa is a business exec- executive. And when we moved in 2006 to the United States, we got jobs in that role. But in 2015, a documentary team heard about our story of leaving Europe because of the rising anti Semitism. 
and um, decided to make a documentary about it and with our personal story uh, featured in that. So the film was about us. In 2017, we became the owner of the film and um, we prepared it for distribution and it will be um, released on Amazon Prime on October 23 of this year. And uh, we're very proud of that. Tell me a little bit about really the journey inside the film because we start off with your family and you find a letter. Yes. And that really kicks off so much. Maybe, Rosa, you can speak to that. Yeah, certainly I can speak to that. Um, this was when um, Evelyn's mom passed away, the end of 2014. We already lived in the United States. We went back. Um, she passed away in her own home as the second of the two parents. We were all in the house, Evelyn, her two brothers, all of the spouses. And somebody takes a book from a shelf and out falls a piece of paper. And we pick it up and we see a date on it. And the date is May 29, 1945. And we start reading and it appears to be a love letter from Evelyn's mom to Evelyn's dad. The two of them were engaged as the Germans marched into the Netherlands. He, her dad, went into hiding and Evelyn's mom's family at the time, because they were young, obviously, mm -hmm. themselves decided not to go into hiding, but to obey the Germans. And so they ended up in the concentration camps. Towards the end of the war, as the Allies were approaching, the Germans wanted to destroy all evidence of the final solution. And so in Bergen-Belsen, which was the camp where Evelyn's family ended up, that meant that all camp people were asked to get into a train. And the objective for their train was to be either blown up on a bridge or driven into a gas chamber. Ten kilometers before that train reached its end goal, it was liberated by the Americans. That whole story is part of the letter that we found after Evelyn's mom passed away. We had no idea of this letter. And clearly it was a very special document. And so not knowing what to do with it, Evelyn made a copy and we went back to the US and, you know, the documentary team learned about this letter. And that's how the whole thing started. And the most beautiful thing, one of the most moving moments in the documentary is when the documentary team translated the letter, started their research, and they found a 98-year-old veteran um, who opened the train door, who liberated Evelyn's family. And so three months after Evelyn's mom passed away, 70 years after the Holocaust ended, the team flew out Evelyn to meet the liberator of her mom and her family. And she could say thank you uh, to this gentleman. Um, you will hear her say that that is one of the most moving moments of her life. Um, ever since that moment, we had a camera team following us for a year. Um, and the result is this documentary. Which goes into so many other aspects because it's not just your your family's story, but you go on this quest and speak with world-renowned experts and parliamentarians and religious leaders and authors and activists, um, finding out different perspectives. How did it evolve into those conversations? The documentary starts with the experiences of my parents during the Holocaust and their liberation. Then it goes on with our experience of resurging anti-Semitism in Europe and leaving Europe. 
And then the last part is about why. Why is it resurging? Um, not even 75 years after the Holocaust, we see anti-Semitism resurge in Europe, in other parts of the world, even in America, we see it rising now. So why is that? How come? And that's why I approached several thought leaders to get their perspective on that question. I'm your host, Jonah Blackman, and we've been speaking with Evelyn Marcus and Rosa Ziegers. What was it like as partners going through this journey of creating this film, directing, producing, being in this film, and sharing some, some really scary subject matter <laughs> and family stuff? Evelyn has been talking about this, as she herself has said a couple of times, since 2000. So I've been used to hearing her talk about it. And frankly, I am from the same background. I, too, am a child of Holocaust survivors. I, too, recognize what she was talking about. I'm not the same type of political activist that Evelyn is. I had my corporate jobs that I, you know, ran behind. But I fully supported what she did. I got to tell you that this thing took on a life of its own after it was made and we saw the effect this movie has had and still has, frankly, in 60-some screenings that we have had around the country where every time you switch on the light, you see people cry and people want to talk about it. I realized, as did Evelyn, that this was a powerful tool and that it needed to be seen broader than just, you know, the, your theater here and there or living room here and there. And that's when we started um, to truly fight, I would almost say, to get the rights and to then clear the rights, which weren't cleared, and find a distributor, which we had never done, and get it in a digital distribution. That's a journey that we have undertaken uh, together. By now, I have left my corporate career, and I'm in semi-retirement, if you wish. But I'm a marketer, so I help Evelyn now in you know, getting the word out, and uh, I think we actually make a pretty good team. Yes. Um where I personally could be a bit irritated about the things we were different in, in the past. And now I appreciate very much our differences. Because, Finally. <laughs> because <laughs> After our, 35 because years. <laughs> our fortes are really complementary now. Yeah. <laughs> in this <laughs> endeavor. <laughs> in your native country, in Holland, did you experience any hatred for being LGBTQ? Over the years, since I grew up, little. Holland is very tolerant, very liberal. Um, there was gay marriage uh, long before the US even started to talk about it. Um, we were married in 2007 in Amsterdam. So that was all good. But it was um, not long before we got married, we suddenly had a pink star of David graffitied at our front door. In our building, there were other um, gay couples, but there were no Jewish gay couples. This was for us the star of David because we were Jewish and it was pink because we were lesbians. So that was the most profound personal experience of anti-LGBTQ that I had ever had or we had ever had. But we heard stories 
the violence against Jews in the streets of Amsterdam increased as of 2000, and the same happens to the LGBTQ community. And um, there is a, a big day of uh, street celebration uh, on the birthday of the, the king every year. It's a st huge street party. It's outrageous. It's, um, it's great. But a few years ago, an LGBTQ fashion show was violently attacked by haters. So I, I had never heard of something like that in Amsterdam. It's now also part of the scene that um, gays are not walking hand in hand anymore in the street. So when we decided to leave Europe and we told our, our gay friends and, and our LGBT friends, they would react with understanding and said, no, we know exactly why you're leaving. We're experiencing all the same thing, whether you're Jewish or not. What surprised you about this inquiry? And actually, let's go back before that, which is you came to the U.S., but so much of this conversation also within the film talks about the nuances of anti-Semitism on the left, on the right, the religious movements, conversation, and what that is in Europe and what that is in the U.S. Can you speak a little bit about stepping into all that? What surprised you informationally or out of the conversations that you had that was new information for you? What surprised me was that in my lifetime, anti-Semitism in Europe wasn't primarily coming from the right, from the far right. That's where you expect it to come from after World War II. It did not. As of the year 2000, it unfortunately came primarily from uh, the Muslim population, the Muslim immigrant population that brought its anti-Semitism from the countries where they were immigrating from. Um, and also, it came from the far left, where you wouldn't expect it from. That started actually a little bit earlier in, in the 70s. So that was a big surprise. How could one minority be so aggressive against another one? And how could the left, which is so much into protecting human rights, give me a hard time as a Jew? When I came to America and saw anti-Semitism research here as well, it comes more from the far right than in Europe, although now in Europe, we saw it in Germany on Yom Kippur last week, there was a, a far right, uh, there was a, a white supremacist uh, shooting at the, at the synagogue in Germany. But the far right here has been stronger after in the post-World War II era than it has been in Europe. So anti-Semitism comes a lot from the far right. That doesn't surprise me. But what surprises me in America is that at universities, for instance, it also comes from the far left. I wouldn't expect that in America. And in the past two, three years, we've also seen religious leaders calling for the annihilation of the Jews. I wouldn't expect that in America. What can the LGBTQIA community do to help support the fight of anti-Semitism today? 
like any other individual or community, it would help if the LGBTQ community would, and individuals would educate themselves about the facts of rising anti-Semitism. Where does it happen? Where does it come from? It would also help if the LGBTQ community would acknowledge that the history of the Jewish people is a history, unfortunately, of a lot of victimhood. There is a, a tendency in intersectional movements where the LGBTQ community also participates actively in to view Jews as oppressors because of Israel, because of success in careers. Um, it would be important for the LGBTQ community to realize that the Jewish community is still quite vulnerable, not only in Israel, but also across the world. Something that is so clear in the film and something I believe you say is how targeting the Jewish community and having that be okay in a society is just the beginning and usually the calling for any marginalized community to be oppressed and that that's what the wake-up call really is. Yes, we've seen in history that anti-Semitism never comes alone. They never come for, for the Jews alone. It's a sign of intolerance and discrimination and hatred um, that always goes further than just targeting the Jews. And in the end, it always leads to tyranny in bigger society. So that's why it's relevant for all of us, and especially for another vulnerable community like the LGBTQ community, which relies on human rights to curb anti-Semitism and where it comes from really at this already not so early anymore stage. The website is joinneveragainisnow.com and the film is Never Again Is Now, playing on Amazon Prime, and you can find it on any of the Amazon US or UK sites. Thank you, ladies, for joining us. Thank you for what you have shared in this film and uh, awakening people to finding some solutions to bring that connective tissue back to our world. As we reach the end of tonight's journey, please make sure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their full upright position. Your seatbelt is securely refastened and all carry-on baggage is stowed underneath the seat in front of you or placed in a progressive stance in the overhead bins. We know you have choices on your radio dial and appreciate you spending time with us. Thank you. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and Director of Distribution and Sparkle, Vash Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you are a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, please email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast, where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcast on YouTube. Good, Good night. night.